Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 19, verse 30 through chapter 20, verse 7. This is found on page 825 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible or don't own a Bible at home, please just take that one in the aisle home with you. That is our gift to you from us. Again, page 825 in the Pew Bible. And Jesus said to them, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you, go into the vineyard too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kristen. Well, welcome and uh, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. I'm the campus pastor at the Brookside campus, and I'm really delighted that you're here this morning. Um, thank you for coming, especially if this is your uh, first time, um, and maybe this is the first time you've been uh, in a church in a really long time. And I know um, whether you have been in church a lot uh, or this is just your first time in a long time, walking into a new church is never an easy thing to do. So thanks for doing that this morning. Hopefully you felt welcomed here and uh, I'm really glad that you've come this morning. Thanks for doing that. Um, each week we spend time looking at the Bible and, and studying what it has to say and how God is speaking through it. And so I want to pray just now before we begin looking at that passage that Kristen read for us in depth and just ask for God's help to speak to us through his word um, and, and help us to understand what he would have us do and how he'd have us to respond. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are not silent. Um, but that you have spoken to us in creation, in the world that you have made, and most clearly in the Bible, that what we hold in our hands are not mere ink on paper, but actually your words spoken through human authors, um, revealing yourself to us. And I pray now that by the power of your Spirit's work, you would um, help us to understand what you would have us to do and uh, energize our hearts and minds to be able to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amazing grace. We do love that song, don't we? I mean, especially how they just did it. Isn't that amazing? I mean, even if this is your first time in church, you've, you've probably heard it before at a funeral or maybe in a movie. But I want to let you in on a little secret this morning about that song. And that is that you don't actually think grace is that amazing. And I don't either. Because, I mean, sure we say we love grace, and, and I'm, I'm sure we don't mind grace, especially for ourselves. But for anybody else, grace is infuriating. Because this, this is what we want for everybody else. That's what we want for everybody else. I, I mean, I've been, I've been waiting since May 15th to be able to use this in a sermon somehow. Um, because who out there just, I mean, you just can't stand Jose Bautista, the whole bat flip thing. He was so mean to us in Kansas City during the playoffs. I, I, I think his own mom can't really stand Jose Bautista. And so finally, someone did something about it. 
Um, Odor, the guy who, who slugged him there, was fined $5,000 by Major League Baseball. Um, and, but actually, a group of fans got together and started a GoFundMe page to thank him uh, for, for being God's hand of justice. Um, a barbecue restaurateur uh, gave uh, Odor free ribs for life in Texas. Because um, that's, that's what we want. And, and, and no, I'm not condoning violence. Odor shouldn't have, have punched him. Um, but, well, maybe just put that picture back up there again for a second. I mean, that is justice, isn't it? I mean, sweet fairness, justice. That's what we want, not grace. We want justice, especially for other people. Um, but not, not for us, right? But, but for others. I remember one summer, Rachel and I were on a walk on the trolley track trail out here along Warnell, and um, we were getting close to home, but we stopped at the quick trip that's just there off of the trail there at 72nd and Warnell. I mean, you know the one. There's that no left turn sign there um, posted from 4 to 6 p.m. And, and you know if you've driven on Warnell during that time, when people ignore that sign, it snarls traffic. And that's something I would never do. But people, sometimes they do. They try to make a left turn there even when you're, you're not supposed to. Well, that afternoon as we came out of Quick Trip, there was some motorcycle police doing a little um, left turn enforcement. And they were just sitting there in the Sutherland's parking lot, really in plain sight, but people weren't paying attention, and they would just make their illegal left turn. And the police didn't have to get on their bikes. They'd just step out into the road, wave them over, <laughs> ride them a ticket. And they, I mean, we probably watched for 10 minutes. It was so much fun. I mean, just wondering, <laughs> are, are they going to notice the police? No, they're not. They're making the turn. Oh, they're getting the ticket. Um, it, was so, it was so satisfying. It was so, I mean, for 10 minutes we were there uh, just watching. Um, it was great. But, but here's the thing. You're probably thinking, this more, no, no, someone this messed up is a pastor? Um, which one is going to say, hey, how about a little grace this morning? Um, because you've never done that, right? There's, you've never judged something for doing something that you're guilty of or, or demanded grace for yourself and condemnation for someone else. I mean, right, of course you have. So, so why is that? Because grace is the worst. Grace that, that means getting something good that you don't deserve, that, that you couldn't have earned. Grace, that's what sets Christianity apart as a worldview. It's what makes Jesus unique, absolutely unique among any other religion or faith in the world. Grace is the hallmark of Christianity, and we hate it. And Jesus knows it. And this is going to be a massive problem for us as human beings. Um, in fact, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we continually struggle to trust Jesus, that we often reject him, is because we despise grace. Grace is infuriating. And if you don't believe me, just listen to the story that Jesus tells here this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 20. Um, and if you're thinking to yourself, wow, I didn't even know there were 20 chapters in Matthew, and it seems like we've been in this book since January. Well, you're right, we have been in this book since January, and there's actually 28 chapters in Matthew, so we're not quite done yet, but we are going to take a break. So we have two more messages in Matthew after this, so we're going to take a break for the fall, and we'll finish the story of Jesus' life, his final week, which is recorded in Matthew 28, uh, 21 through 28, later on this winter. But here, we're still in Matthew chapter 20, and Jesus tells a story, and he picks up right where he left off last week. Last week, if you're here, we, we saw in the end of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is teaching about how hard it is for the rich, people like us, to enter the kingdom. 
And he ends with these words, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then Jesus tells the story, story of a small business owner. And this story, like so many of Jesus' parables and stories that he tells, takes place in the marketplace, in the workplace, where, where we spend most of our lives. And this small business owner, he's the owner-operator of a family vineyard. Jesus calls him the master of the house. And the owner-operator, he, he goes into the village market looking for some day laborers, and maybe the vines needed tending, or it's harvest time, he needs some extra workers. And so he goes to this corner of the village where day laborers wait for someone to hire them. And we still have this today, right? I remember um, when I lived downtown, uh, when I first moved here to Kansas City, where I-35 is elevated above Southwest Boulevard there, um, there's always, uh, in the mornings, people there waiting under that bridge near the restaurant, waiting to be hired for the day to go do work. And it's a hard life. A day labor is a hard life. Um, it's hard today, and it was hard then as well. And in fact, um, New Testament scholars point out that actually for day laborers had a, had a much worse life in the first century than, than slaves did. Because when we think of slavery today, we tend to think of American chattel slavery. But in the Roman Empire, while slaves were certainly at times mistreated and abused, more often than not, they were treated well, and they had their basic needs provided. They were, they were much closer to the servants in Downton Abbey than they were to African slaves on a plantation in America. But the situation of a day laborer is far worse. Uh, they never knew if they would have work. They, they never knew if they'd earn enough to feed their families that day. It was life on the edge. And so when the master of the house, this owner-operator, arrives in the morning in the market looking to hire workers, everyone is eager. They, they rush up to him. They want to be hired as part of the crew for that day. And so he, he selects a few workers that he needs for the work that day, and he hires them at the standard rate. Imagine what they must have felt like as they trekked to work that day. I mean, relief. They were going to be able to earn some money that day and feed their families. Dignity. Someone had found them worthy of doing a job and had hired them. Anticipation. I mean, maybe this would turn into a regular thing, or, or maybe at least they would do good enough work that the owner would bring them back to work again the next day. But alongside all of those feelings of, of relief, of anticipation, of dignity, I can imagine there's probably another emotion as well. Probably one of a little bit of, of, of sadness, not, not for themselves, but for the guys who didn't get picked. Because they'd been there too. They, they knew what it was like not to get chosen. This is on the owner's mind, too. I mean, he had seen their faces, the faces of the ones that he didn't hire. And if you've felt ever in your life the sting of unemployment or the pain of being passed over in a job interview, I mean, you know how hard it is. For these in this honor and shame-based culture in which these laborers lived and worked in, the feeling was even more intense. A New York Times magazine um, ran, a, ran a story about 10 years ago about um, the lives of some Japanese workers after the economic collapse in 1989 in Japan. 
And in Japan in 1989, following this economic crisis, you had all of these newly unemployed Japanese men. They were nearly all men who could not face the shame of acknowledging their job loss to their families and neighbors. So they never told them. They would just get up every morning as they always had, put on their suit, pack their lunch, leave the house, and they would just go sit in the library or at the park. They called them invisible men. And then they would return home in the evening as if they had been at work all day, living this illusion, until eventually a lot of them just left one day and never came back at all. It's a shame when you don't have the kind of work that you desire, a desperation. Yona remembered that. He remembered those faces, the desperation that he saw. And so a few hours later, around 9 a.m., while he doesn't necessarily need more workers, there's more work that could be done. So he returns to the market to see if there was anyone left who still needed work. And there was. Look at verse 3. It says, going out about the third hour, that's 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. Now, that word idle there um, can kind of have a, a negative connotation to us, sort of a pejorative sense of, of being lazy or just having nothing um, good going on. But really, a better trans- translation is probably just, is just it means not working. So a better translation would probably be, he just saw others standing there with no work to do. There was no work for them to do. And the fact that they're standing is actually key as well. They aren't sitting, the text mentions that explicitly, they aren't sitting around, lounging around, just, well, if someone comes, great, if not, that's fine too. They're standing, they're eagerly, they're ready to rush up to whoever would offer them work. And the owner does offer them work. He hires them, uh, not this time for a specific amount, like with the first crew, but just for what is right. And they're ecstatic. They got a second chance, and they head to the vineyard and join those who are already working. But the compassionate owner, he he just can't shake the feeling that there might be some more people who are in need of work that day. And in the busy life of a small business like his, there's always more work that could be done. And so he goes back a third time and a fourth time at noon and at 3 p.m., each time hoping that everyone would have found work but both times finding that there were still those who hadn't. So he hires them also. The vineyard is full of workers. Lots is getting done. But the owner, even toward the end of the day, he just can't shake this feeling that he should go back one more time just to make sure that there isn't anyone left who still needs work. So he goes back once more at 5 p.m., one hour before quitting time at 6, just to see. It says, about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle with no work to do all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go to the vineyard too. At this point, it's almost like saying, well, but for one hour? I mean, if he's concerned about them, why, why not just give them a handout? Just say, you know, go home, here's some money. But work is good, Right? There's dignity in work. We are created for work. Jesus knows this. The owner knows this. So he invites them to come work in the vineyard. But notice with these workers, he doesn't mention anything about pay at all. I mean, maybe they think, maybe he'll just give us a little pittance for working for an hour, or maybe they think this is kind of one of those unpaid internships that maybe he's going to let us get our foot in the door for tomorrow. 
But either way, they're just grateful for something. They join the other laborers in the vineyard for an hour. And then at 6 p.m., the the workers gather to be paid and to head home. And this is where the story, though, it it takes a bizarre twist. Look at verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. This language sound familiar? Last, first. Pay them beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who had hired, been hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, now wait a second. They received a denarius. He paid the workers he had hired last the ones who had only worked one hour, a denarius, a full day's wage, the same amount he had agreed to pay those who started way back at the beginning of the day. I mean, these had only worked one hour, and they're getting the same amount of money as those who had worked 12. I mean, this is stunning generosity on the, on the part of the owner. This is an amazing compassion. What an incredible gift to these guys. And so seeing this, those who had worked the, all, all the whole day are thinking, wow, if that's what he did for, for someone who just worked an hour, I wonder what he's going to do for us. We were here for 12. Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. So, whoa, wait, wait, wait a moment. They worked 11 more hours, got the same pay, And you're probably feeling at this moment what they were feeling, which is, that's not fair. That's not fair. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master, verse 11, saying, these worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That's not fair. But the owner replies to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first, last. And that's where the story ends. We aren't told what happens next. Jesus doesn't tell us how the workers respond. Jesus just leaves it open-ended, inviting us to ask, what what would I do? What would you do in that situation? Because Jesus says, this is what my kingdom is like. It's a kingdom that welcomes rejects, the despised, the people you don't really want to be there. It's a kingdom that welcomes those who don't don't get it all right, whose lives are messy and broken and sinful, whose, whose lives are just different than yours, who don't live the same way you do, don't vote the same way as you do, who don't look the same way you do, and, and, and who show up late. It's a kingdom that pursues people all day long, all throughout the day, even in the final moments, that those who, for whatever reason, haven't found work all day are invited in, pursued, welcomed, loved. And, and sometimes they come even at the last minute. That is grace. That's grace. And there's only two ways to respond to it. We can resent it, reject it, or we can receive it. 
We can despise it or celebrate it, but there's no middle ground. There's only two ways to respond. You can resent it or receive it. And a lot of the times, if we're honest with ourselves, we resent it. Our our default setting as human beings is to resent grace. Why? I think there are at least three reasons why we tend to resent grace, why we find grace just absolutely infuriating. See, first, grace is infuriating because it's not fair. Grace and fairness could not be further apart. You see, because that's what makes grace grace. The second that something is earned, the second it's deserved, it isn't grace. So those guys, those 11th hour guys, they, they earned one hour's worth of pay, but they got 12 hours worth of pay. That's grace, an undeserved gift because of someone's generosity. And we can't stand it. You know, we love the rags to riches story, right? We love the story of, of the woman who grows up poor, but then she, she pays her way through college and she starts a company and she provides all these jobs and she builds this wealth for her family that, that no one else, like that she couldn't have possibly when she was little imagined that she would ever have. We love that story. We go to see movies about that story. But the story we can't stand is the story of that woman's kids who just get all of that wealth just because they were born. We don't like that story. It's not fair. What did they do? That's grace. And it isn't fair. And Jesus says, if you're going to be a part of this kingdom, you better get used to it. Because this is how it works. There are no rags-to-riches stories, no self-made men and women in the kingdom. It's all gloriously unfair grace. Second, grace is infuriating because it, it can't be earned. It's infuriating because it isn't fair, but it also it's infuriating because it can't be earned. It's a gift, but we want to earn it. We want to be good enough. Because even just think about how we give gifts as adults. We don't really give gifts as adults, I don't think. Um, as kids, you do kind of get a gift that's truly just a gift you receive. But most of the time as adults, if someone gives you something, you kind of feel like you need to give them something back. And like even in families, you're really just sort of exchanging objects of roughly equal value at different times of the year. So it's like if my sister gives me a $25 present, then four months later, her birthday, I'm going to give her a $25 present. You know, we're kind of equal. We're not really giving gifts. We're just sort of exchanging these objects that are roughly the same price. But grace doesn't work like that. Grace can't be earned. It can't be paid back. I think that's another big reason why grace is so infuriating is that we want to earn it, and we want to earn it because we don't want to be in anyone's debt. We don't want to be obligated to them. We don't want to have them have any stake or control in our lives. Tim Keller, in his fantastic book, The Reason for God, tells the story of a woman's reaction as she began to understand the implications of grace. This is what she said as she began to understand what this meant. She says, If I was saved by my good works then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have certain, would have done my duty, and now I would have a certain quality of life that I deserve. But if I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And she's right. 
She got it. And it's a big part of what makes grace so infuriating. So yes, grace is infuriating. It's not fair. We can't earn it. It does mean losing control. But grace is also our only hope. It's also our only hope, so receive it. Receive it. That's, that's your only other option. You can resent it, you can reject it, or you can receive it. But how? How do we actually go about receiving this gift? Well, first, you have to stop your earning. You have to stop your earning. Because again, there are no self-made men and women in God's kingdom. We are all trust fund babies in God's kingdom. We are all do an incredible inheritance because of nothing that we have done, nothing we could possibly do, but simply because we've been adopted into the family. In fact, the scripture says from start to finish that one thing is clear we have earned, and that's death. As human beings who have rebelled against God, the only thing that we've earned is death. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says, for the wages, what we've earned, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That contrast between what we've earned and what's given as a gift, a free gift of grace. So what does it look like when you stop earning and start receiving, when you start breathing grace? Scotty Smith, a a worship pastor um, a while back, just started tweeting a bunch of things, dozens and dozens of these, and they were just signs that you're growing in grace. Signs you're growing in grace. Here are just a few. Sign you're growing in grace. Failure is an option. Your perfectionism is being crushed by the rate of grace. Sign you're growing in grace. Jesus, since Jesus is your righteousness, you don't take your spiritual temperature all the time. Sign you're growing in grace. You don't break out in legalism hives when someone starts talking about obedience. Sign you're growing in grace. You you don't assume God's trying to teach you lessons as much as he's trying to teach you the gospel. Sign you're growing in grace. You work hard at remembering people's names and forgetting their blunders. Sign you're growing in grace. You don't feel compelled to have an opinion about everything or share the ones you do have. He's got like 75 of these. Signs were growing in grace. And and just because all this is by grace doesn't mean that there isn't effort involved. There's all kinds of effort involved in growing in grace. Don't miss that. But what we have to understand is that even the effort that we exert in growing in grace is fueled by and empowered by grace. So even our efforts expended in growing in grace are a gift given by grace. So stop earning. Start receiving. Second, stop comparing yourself with other people. This is the whole point of Jesus' parable with the disciples here, that there's only one audience, the master. We get nowhere except for bitter or superior or frustrated when we look at other people and try to compare ourselves. There's this great moment at the end of the Gospel of John, another book in the New Testament that tells the story of Jesus-like life like Matthew does here. And it's at the end of the Gospel of John. Spoiler alert here, Jesus has risen from the dead. Um, We haven't gotten there, but it happens. And, And he's talking to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, and he just has told Peter how much he's gonna suffer for for Jesus' sake. Jesus says, Peter, you're gonna suffer a lot for me. 
And Peter immediately turns and says, well, what about John? What's going to happen to him? And this is what Peter, he says, Lord, what about this man? This is what Peter says, or Jesus says back to him. He says, Peter, if it's my will that John remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. We start comparing ourselves to other people, saying, well, what about them? Jesus says, don't worry about them. You follow me. So don't compare whose life is easier or harder, who's given up more for the gospel, who's suffered the most or the least, who's had the harder, more difficult life. Live before an audience of one. Follow him. Because why do we compare? To, to know where we're at, to feel secure, to feel that we're doing good or, or to feel that we're doing bad or about ourselves. Or, or do, don't you see that grace destroys all of that? In grace, you only have one audience, and you don't have to compare because that, the audience that you have, his opinion of you, God's opinion of you, is already that you're a beloved son or daughter. There's nothing more you can do or possibly earn. You are the highest place in his estimation. You don't have to compare because you have the approval of the one who matters most already. Another one of Scotty Smith's signs you're growing in grace you spend less time comparing your kids, your spouse, your house, your body, your job, your luck to others. So finally, because grace is our only hope, not only do we stop earning and stop comparing, we also stop hoarding. See, in grace, we give what we have received. When we hear the language of hoarding, we, we typically think of stuff, right? Books, money, food, cats. Um, the show hoarders. But have you ever thought about how we hoard grace? I mean, you become a Christian, you're, you're stunned by grace. You, you might even say, I'm amazed by grace. But somewhere along the line, as you kind of go along in, in your journey, you start forgetting what you received. And all of a sudden, you're not singing amazing grace anymore. You're singing infuriating grace. How awful the sound that angered an envier like me. I once was humble, but now I'm proud, was joyful, but now I'm peeved. <laughs> That's a Bill Gorman original, by the way. Um, we get angry about people being treated better than we feel like they deserve, forgetting that that's exactly how we've been treated by God. We effectively hoard grace. The grace that we've been shown. And some of us, like, we don't, we don't feel like we have enough to give to other people or we don't want anyone else to get it, but that's not how grace works because there is always more where that came from. There's an unlimited supply of grace, but you extending it to other people in no way diminishes the grace that you have received. And this is why a Christian vision of justice is never limited to a mere righting of wrongs or a mere equal application of the law. It's not less than that, but it's so much more because grace is not about treating people as they deserve. It's about treating them vastly better than they deserve. That's a Christian vision of justice, not just giving people what they deserve, but giving them better than they deserve. Because that's how God has interacted and continues to interact with every single one of us. That's how Jesus' kingdom works. That's how his kingdom works. That's a grace-saturated vision of justice. So daily find ways to give what you've received in grace. Treat others better than they deserve. Because God has treated you that way. 
Are we becoming kind of an 11th hour sort of community? Where the last are first, where people who are despised, who are last in the world, come here and they find grace and welcome and acceptance. I pray and I hope that we are. Because that's what Jesus' kingdom is like. That's what he's telling us in this parable. This is what grace looks like. And you see, Jesus was the ultimate first one who became last. He was the maker, creator, sustainer of the universe, the all-powerful ruler of all that exists. And yet he comes to earth. He takes on the form of a servant. He makes himself last. He washes the disciples' feet. He lives a life without a place to lay his head, the gospels say. He dies a criminal's death on the cross. If anyone has been first and become last, it's Jesus. On the cross, Jesus gets justice so that you and I can receive grace. And yes, grace can be infuriating at first, but it's our only hope, and it's the greatest news you will ever hear, I promise. So the only question is, will you reject it, or will you receive it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that by a gift of your grace, you would enable us to receive your grace, to love it, to treasure it, to extend it to others. Would you make us a people who seeks to always treat others better than they deserve? Because that's exactly how you have treated us. Would you make us into a church, a f- church family, a community that just oozes that kind of grace to the world? Would this place be a little, a little taste of what your kingdom is like in our city? In Jesus' name, amen.